If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we have been uh, looking together at what the Bible has to say in the way of providing practical applications for some of life's most pressing issues and questions. And if you look in the worship folder today, you can tell that I had been planning this morning to talk with you about the biblical application for raising God-loving kids. It's a topic I'd love to come back to. I will come back to at a future date. But in light of the uh, events of this past week and the passing of our founding pastor, it just felt to me like God was leading me to focus our attention differently this morning, that it would be helpful to think together about an even more basic condition, a more fundamental subject uh, in our lives, that of the subject of life and death itself. Many years ago, I had the uh, opportunity to talk with Dr. DeKreiter after a uh, particular message that I had given on this topic. Uh, This had been a message that, uh, for one reason or another, particularly resonated with uh, him. Uh, He made a point at that time of telling me that he felt like that. The content within that uh, discourse was something that really needed to be heard as widely as possible. I know that the truths that were contained in that particular sermon were very close to Dr. Kreider's heart and, to, in fact, to the themes of, of his own preaching ministry. And I know that they are also realities which he understands today from a vantage point that the rest of us can only envy. Uh, he has a certainty now about these verities uh, that uh, was a journey of faith for him in this life but is truly knowledge for him today. And so in tribute to Dr. DeKreiter, I want to do something I've very rarely done through the years, and that is repeat a message. I want to go back and preach to you that message which he remarked upon long ago. Uh, For some of us sitting here, you've come along recently enough, you've never heard this message. For others of you sitting here today, you don't remember what I said last week. (laughs) So I trust that this will prove useful uh, to you and to those listening in uh, this morning as well. The message is entitled, The Light at the End of the Tunnel. It is the biblical app for all of us who have ever wondered, how can I be sure of eternal life? And our scripture text comes today from the Gospel of John, I want to read to you this morning from the words of the prologue of that gospel, John chapter 1. You may care to turn in your Bibles and follow along with me uh, as I read from selected verses in John uh, chapter 1. This uh, prologue is one of the most familiar passages uh, in the Bible. You will certainly recognize these words, and I think you will see quickly their application to the topic this morning. Hear then the word of the Lord. And in respect for it, let's rise. Let's rise to our feet. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness 
has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. In recent decades, it has sometimes seemed as if the one-way door of death has become, at times, a revolving door instead. Through advances in medical resuscitation technology, there were, at last count, I'm told, some 8 million Americans who, after clinically dying, were brought back to life again. If you have read books like 90 Minutes in Heaven or some of the other popular work out there, then you know that what is especially fascinating about these accounts is how similar the experiences of many of these death-to-life people are. They describe feeling their soul leaving their body almost like a hand withdrawing from a glove. They speak of being led or drawn down a long, dark tunnel, and then encountering at the end of that tunnel an amazing radiant light, or more often, an awesome being of light who often leaves them with a touch of life-changing grace or life-altering truth that they're eager to now come back and share with anybody else that will listen. What should we make of all of these experiences? How is people of faith or people who struggle to have faith, how do we understand these near-death experiences? Well, in the first place, I would suggest we are wise to consider them in light of what the Bible itself says about life and death. Why is it important to do that? Why is it not enough to simply take these experiences at face value? Well, in the words of Tall Brook, head of the Spiritual Counterfeits Project in Berkeley, it is simply because experience can lie. Experience can lie. 
Indeed, those of us who have been witnesses to drug-induced visions, and there are a few children of the 60s listening in today who know what I'm talking about, or those of us who have been in the presence of the ravages of mental illness and psychosis, or the world-class illusions of a David Copperfield, if you've experienced any of these kinds of things, then you know that mere sensory experiences can be very deceiving. This is one of the reasons why I believe that God chose to give us this book. It's why he elected to bring together this revelation in the truth of his word. He wanted us to have a reliable plumb line against which to evaluate our experiences in life, make sense of the experiences we have in life. All kinds of books that are flowing out from these near-death experiences today, for example, Betty Eady's very popular book, Embraced by the Light, All of these books give millions of people certain ideas about life, about death, about God, or even about Jesus. Many people are forming their understanding of these supernatural realities on the basis of those books. But it's important to know that the Jesus that so often gets described there, or the God that gets described there, varies significantly from the account that the scriptures themselves give us of God in life. In Embraced by the Light, for example, Mrs. Edie describes a belief system that she claims Jesus gave her, but which veers off from the actual words and teachings of Jesus in more than 20 different doctrines. Jesus specifically warned his disciples that in the last days, Many false messiahs and prophets will appear and will produce great signs and omens to lead people astray. The Apostle John once said that we must not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Hold them up against this plumb line to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Apostle Paul cautioned us in the same manner. He said that we should be careful to hold every claim against the plumb line of Scripture because sometimes even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. God's Word needs to be our first test and our final authority when it comes to evaluating experience. And that's the first point that I want to impress upon you this morning. Having said that, the second idea I hope you will take with you today is that there are some things about these near-death experiences that really do line up with what Jesus and the Bible has to tell us about life and death and life beyond death. And I, this, I think, this corroborating or aligning testimony in both the Word of God and in these accounts provides me, at least, with some sense of comfort. Maybe it will be of comfort to you this morning as well. One of of the most terrifying thoughts that many of us have when we are faced with the prospect of our own death or the death of someone we cherish in this life is that there will come a moment when this unique, unrepeatable, 
idiosyncratic, miraculous, magnificent creation of God will be no more. Will be not. Simply not. And, 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 and one of the most um, soul-shuddering things that happens to us as we get closer and closer to that eventuality is this terrible fear. What if it all just goes away? And, and no matter how faithful we have been, there are these moments where we wonder to ourselves, maybe it just all disappears. There will come a day when you or I or the people we love are not. And yet what these near-death experiences tell us, and more importantly, God's Word says to us, is that there will never come a day when you and I are not. While your body will certainly waste away and finally die, no exceptions made to that rule, your soul, that part of yourself that is most uniquely and most personally you, is going to survive the grave. It is going on. Remember the words that were spoken through the prophet Jeremiah long ago. Before you were even born, I knew you, says God. I I knew you, your unique, distinct, unrepeatable personality and nature and life. I knew you, says God. And I know the plans that I have for you, he says. Plans to give you a future and a hope. That's my desire. In other words, when the cardiac monitor flatlines, that which is most truly you is not lost. It doesn't dissolve like a drop of water into the cosmic ocean of things. You, you, will go on. But that's not all. Many near-death experiences also tend to line up with the Bible's affirmation that your soul or the soul of your loved ones goes on immediately. Immediately. The soul, in other words, does not invisibly wander the earth for a while as a ghost, no matter how many movies you've seen that depicts this. It does not linger in some purgatorial waiting room, even if you're a fan of Lost. It doesn't work its way up some exhausting spiritual ladder trying to prove its worth so it can finally get into heaven. In other words, eternity doesn't work in any way like the Department of Motor Vehicles does. At the moment of physical death, all of the wandering, all of the waiting, all of the working, all of the wondering that have characterized life here in this time plane, all of that's over. And your soul, who you are, goes intact and immediately to be with God. Once again, we don't just need near-death experiences to tell us this. Jesus says it to us himself. To the thief on the cross, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, or truly, I tell you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. 
And to his faithful disciples, Jesus declares, do not let your hearts be troubled, but trust in God. Trust also in me. I am going to prepare a place for you. And I will return to take you to be where I am. There is more good news even than that. When you are where Jesus is, you are totally renewed by his life and his love. Again and again, the testimony of many who seem to go through these near-death experiences, who come back from the other side of the grave, it seems, the testimony of these people is this. There is redemption over there. There is light and love and hope and newness, redemption over there. Diane Comp, a pediatric oncologist, which means a cancer doctor that works with kids, at Yale University describes being gradually converted from atheism to agnosticism and then to personal faith in Jesus Christ by witnessing the experiences of children near death. Kids, she said, who had no publisher's incentive to distort the truth. Kids who had no reason to stretch the reality. Kids who had no predisposed pictures of what the afterlife was like told her the most amazing things. And she recounts it in this book, A Window to Heaven. Comp recalls sitting with a family in their final moments with their seven-year-old daughter, a victim of leukemia. And this is what the little girl said. The angels, the angels, they're so beautiful. Mommy, can you see them? Do you hear their singing? I've never heard such beautiful singing. Comp says, the word that most closely describes what I felt at that moment is gift. Other children, she writes, spoke of being totally surrounded by a warmth and love so great that like those first disciples following the resurrection of Jesus, these kids suddenly seemed to be filled with this absolute confidence that made them utterly unafraid to face anything, not death or pain itself. And this, my friends, is the truth that the scriptures have been proclaiming all along. As we read in Isaiah 25 and verse 8, he, God, will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Or as St. Paul says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be raised imperishable. Not dying, not decaying, not dissolving, but imperishable, we shall be raised. We shall be changed, redeemed fully, finally, and forever, the Bible says. We go on. We go on immediately. 
we go on into an encounter with Christ. And if we are his followers, it is, it is an encounter of redemption and transformation of light and of love. But there is more to the story than that. While many of the near-death narratives provide tremendous comfort, it must also be said that some of them line up with the pointed challenge that Jesus gives us, that heaven is not all there is. I think of the old cemetery in Indiana that has a tombstone bearing the following epitaph. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. And those words are almost as stirring as the ones that some passerby scratched beneath them which read, To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. We laugh, and yet this insight is so often mocked and so frequently forgotten in our time. All of the By the Light books of recent decades speak of the embracing warmth of God's love. They leave you with the impression that it does not matter how we lead our lives on earth because when our bodies die, we inevitably wind up in heaven. Have you heard this kind of talk? This general sense that no matter what, in the end, except for maybe the absolute worst serial killers, we all wind up redeemed. But in my research for this message, I came across another book, one written by a cardiobiologist at the University of Tennessee that corroborates another aspect of the biblical message. In the book that he writes on this particular subject, Beyond Death's Door, Dr. Maurice Rawlings and his colleagues interviewed more than 300 people who claimed to have had near-death experiences. What made Rawlings' research on this subject distinct is that the interviews that he and his colleagues conducted uh, were given not months or years after the experiences, but immediately after people had had these kinds of encounters. While the patients were still too shaken up to gloss over or to spin or to reimagine what they had encountered, Nearly 50% of these people reported encountering images of fire. 50%. Images of torment, of tormenting creatures, of other sights hailing from a place very different than heaven. In follow-up interviews, and this is fascinating, in follow-up interviews much later, many people had changed their story. 
They had been apparently unwilling to admit to themselves or to say to other people that they had actually caught a glimpse of something like what the Bible calls what? Hell. That's right. And Rawlings concludes his remarks by saying that just listening to these patients has changed my life. There is life after death, he maintains. And if I don't know where I am going, it is not safe to die, he says. The ancient evangelical question is this. Do you know where you're going? How can you be sure of eternal life? Some of us live our entire lives thinking that this question is irrelevant because when we're dead, we're dead. When we're dead, we're just not. But that is not true. Our souls go on. And these experiences and this word proclaim that reality. Others of us think that the question of our eternal destination is premature because we will certainly have a chance to switch our positions or to firm up our status after we die. We'll be able to plead our case, but that is not true. We go on immediately into an encounter with the one who will be our judge. Our souls go on immediately into the presence of God, and still others think that the question about where we go is, frankly, a dumb one since a loving, good God could not help but embrace us. But that is only partly right. He is trying to embrace us. He stretches out his arms to us, desperately seeking to embrace us in this life. But he is also a holy God, this loving God. And the brilliance of his nature will not brook forever the darkness of unresolved sin. On his deathbed many years ago, the great British intellectual and journalist G.K. Chesterton said these final words. The issue is now clear, he spoke. It is between light and darkness, and everyone must choose his side. If these near-death experiences are good for anything, I think they help us to reflect on how important it is to choose the light now. I don't mean the light that we will meet at the far end of death's tunnel. I mean the light who has come to this end of the passageway that we might have a relationship with him now. John put it this way in our text for today. In Christ was life, and that life was the light of all people. The true light, the light that gives light to everyone, has come into the world. The world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And here's the wonderful part. 
yet, yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To become children in the hands of a loving God. When my son was young, an elderly pastor once shared, we often walked together out through the neighboring pasture. At first, the young fellow would hold on to my little finger. But whenever he stumbled over something, his grip would fail, and down he'd go into the dust or into the snow. And I would stop, and he'd get up, and he'd brush himself off, and he'd grab my little finger again, gripping a little tighter this time. And this occurred quite frequently until one day, as he was brushing himself off, he looked up at me and said, Daddy? And I replied, Yes, child, what is it? Daddy, he said, I think that if you would hold my hand, I would not fall. And I think he's right about that. We can be like that child. We can be absolutely certain that we will not fall. All you have got to do is to ask your father to take firm hold of you. Not out there at the far end of that tunnel, but here and now at this end. If you're going to go on the journey ahead, says Jesus, you have to start as a child. Suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to go on the long journey, not just in this life, but beyond this life, and be well, then you must be like this little child. You must know that this is the way into the kingdom of your father. You have to admit to yourself first, and then to God, that you need him. That without him, you will surely fall. It will not do to trust your good deeds. And survey after survey confirms that even church-going people still believe that their good deeds will be sufficient. It will not do to trust your good deeds. It will not do to trust your moral purity. God does not grade on a curve. It will not do to trust your religious lineage. I don't care if your grandfather was a pastor and your grandmother a missionary. It will not do to trust your surface piety. It does not matter if we go to church every week and to mass twice on Tuesdays. It won't do. None of these things will be enough. We're simply not strong enough. We're simply not strong enough to hold on to life. But if you will trust his grip. If you will really stop putting your trust in yours and start putting your trust in his, like you have never trusted anybody for anything before, I can promise you this. I can promise you this. When the time comes 
that death isn't just a near experience, but totally upon you, you will not fall. You will not have reason to fear the light or fear the heat. For as a child born of God, you will be safe and you will be at home with him. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, if there is even one person joining me in prayer right now who who is not sure where he or she is going, supply that confidence now, I pray. Help that precious person become born of you today. And as that person releases his or her dependence upon their own strength, to make it across the great passage or even to live to full potential in this life. Let that child feel your hand, Father, holding on to him or to her. Thank you for the comfort and assurance you give us for today. Thank you for the bright hope you offer us for tomorrow. Thank you that this good news, which Dr. DeCryder preached for 60 years, is now the wonderful reality that he is enjoying for all eternity. For together we pray in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christ alone, in the name of him who is the light of the world. Amen.